Our Father is wonderful and as plain and as glorious and as evident are your works of creation and redemption. You have displayed your glory, you have displayed your power, you have displayed your faithfulness before all the world for all to see. You have borne witness of your Son through individuals and how you worked through them, through a nation that you called to yourself and gave the great glorious promises in the temple and the sacrifices. Ultimately, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you, the eternal Son of God, and publicly displayed before all the world as an atonement for our sin on the cross, as a propitiation, a satisfaction of all righteousness for our sin. And then raised him from the dead so that all are without excuse and all are commanded to repent and to believe in the witness that, Father, you have borne to your Son. And yet, in spite of the plainness, in spite of the evidence, in spite of the clarity, in spite of the faithfulness and the working, your workings among men, it is a glory that we can only see by a sovereign work of your Spirit that opens the eyes of the blind, that replaces darkness with light, a stony heart with one of flesh, unbelief with belief. And so we acknowledge that we are here merely by grace, and we thank you that we have, by your decision, that mystery of your kindness to us, have been made to see the glory of your Son. And we pray that we would continue to gaze on that glory by the preserving work of your Spirit more and more as we put away sin and put on righteousness, as we stumble and fall and you pick us back up to walk on the path of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you that you would, and we ask you that you would keep us always gazing on your glory in Christ, transforming us from one image of glory to the next to the next until we know the full reality of it when in the resurrection we are conformed to the body of your glory, O Christ, uh, and we'll be in that condition forever. So to that end, encourage us this morning as we open your word and we remember these great and glorious truths in your table. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, unfold to us with a greater sense of clarity and worship the wonders of our redemption. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, back to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And I'll mention this, uh, I thought of it before the prayer, forgot during the prayer, and then remembered after the prayer. Uh, to mention Jesse Rebar, uh, and y'all are already praying for him, but uh, he asked specifically to pray for uh, those he's witnessing to in the hospital, just that his witness would be clear, and uh, he's healing well, as you already know, and so we praise God for the success of his surgery. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we come back again to this uh, wonderful book and this chapter, and we're nearing the end, but we're not there yet, so we're still again this morning back in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Let me just briefly remind you of the context of this chapter, in many ways of the entire book, uh, a theme that runs throughout, but of this chapter is namely wisdom and foolishness in places of authority, in places of civil authority. And as we've noted uh, each time that he is comparing wisdom and foolishness in places of authority, but wisdom and foolishness are universal principles uh, not merely uh, applicable to those who are in pl uh, places of authority and who hold positions of uh, power and civil government and so forth, but uh, wisdom and foolishness is a, is a reality that's built into God's moral universe, and we live in God's world. It's created according to uh, His purposes. It's created to reflect His glory, and it operates on inviolable moral principles, things that God requires of us, things that have uh, consequences when we deviate from his purposes and blessing when we walk according to his will. And so while this is uh, in one sense centered on the, the royal court, it is uh, principles, there are principles that apply to us uh, throughout. And so we'll seek to observe uh, all of those. Well, we begin this section in chapter 4, uh, verse 4, going all the way down to verse 20, and we are approaching it in this way, mainly, essentially, making observations of wisdom and foolish, making observations about wisdom and foolishness uh, in places of civil authority and its consequences, but also in our own lives. 
By way of reminder, before we read the section we'll cover this morning, in verse 4, we observed that it is important to keep your composure and conviction in the presence of the fool. We must be convicted of the truth. We must hold fast to the truth. And even when we're in the presence of foolishness and a threat to our testimony, it is wise to remain steadfast in what we know to be true. And ultimately, that will end up with producing the most influence. We observed secondly in verses 5 through 7 that wisdom, however, in a fallen world is not always honored for power often resides in the hand of a capricious and a foolish ruler. In other words, if you look at the pattern of life, the course of history, uh, while there are good rulers and there are good things, most often it's foolishness and sin that rises to the heights of power and ends up corrupting rather than building up. It ends up destroying And so wisdom is not always honored. We noted thirdly in verses 8 through 11 that wisdom brings success, but foolishness brings destruction upon itself. Foolishness is its own worst enemy, as you could say. The fool is his own worst enemy because his foolishness will ultimately bring about his own destruction. And then we begin to enter into the next section in a fourth observation, namely that foolishness does not keep the foolish from speaking. And that's in verses 12 through 14. And we'll try to finish out the chapter this morning. So let me begin actually in verse 12 and read through verse 20 and then we'll come back around and pick it up again at verse 12. Verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies his words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princess feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag. Through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound of the winged, and the winged creature will make the matter known. And there it is as we continue in this collection of wisdom and of foolishness. Look back at verse 12, and again we... We note the observation that foolishness does not keep the foolish from speaking. Foolishness does not keep the foolish from speaking. And he begins by giving somewhat of a header by making a general contrast between the wise and the foolish. The wise person, the one who fears God, brings forth speech marked by graciousness. That's the sum of a wise man's speech. That is, the totality of the words of their mouth is that they are gracious. In other words, it is speech that reflects essentially an understanding and experience of the grace of God in the heart, the reality of the truth of God in the inner man. Remember here, the section, again, throughout Ecclesiastes, and particularly here, is as wisdom and foolishness is displayed as the reality of the quality of a person's heart. In other words, it's, it's really not so much of what we do. What we do is merely the fruit of who we are. What we are on the inside. Again, a summary verse here is in verse 2 of chapter 10. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. In other words, there is going to be a tendency and a pattern in a person's life that is reflective of who they truly are in the inner man. And eventually it will become known. It will be evident whether there's wisdom or whether there's foolishness. You just give it enough time. (laughs) You just hang around uh, a person long enough uh, and it will become evident. But if we were to put a large, just a general statement about the wise man and gracious speech, we would say this. It's speech that builds up, speaks the truth, and is not marked by self-serving, being self-serving or selfishness. It, it builds up rather than, it gives rather than takes. It builds up rather than tears down. The words of a fool, again, one who does not fear God, by contrast, he says, consume him. They consume him. And again, there you see this theme that foolishness is self-destructive. Foolishness brings its own harm. Foolishness, in this case, consumes the one who is a fool by his words. In other words, they are ultimately self-destructive. And so that's what we considered uh, last week. But then he takes this even further, and he look at verse 13. Not only will they consume him, they give it a striking testimony to... 
the real nature of his fallenness. Look at verse 13. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. And we see here then there is progression. And the idea is that the longer that a fool talks, uh, the worse his foolishness becomes. The longer that he speaks, then the worse that his speech uh, becomes. You let him talk long enough and it will only get worse. And again, why? Because it reveals the heart. It reveals the heart. It's what, the, it's what is true of the person's heart, the fool's heart. Jesus said the familiar words that the mouth speaks, you could finish it, out of the abundance of the heart. It's like, a, it's like an outlet for whatever is in our heart. And here for the foolish person, their foolishness begins in folly and it ends in wicked madness. Because that, again, is where the reality of who we are and our spiritual condition uh, resides. Let me give you just these familiar words, and then we'll consider this closely. You don't have to turn to Mark chapter 7. Uh, he says this, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things proceed from within, and they defile the man. So if those are the realities that are the most true of an individual as far as the things that are cherished, as far as the things that are believed, the things that are truly loved within the heart, then it's inevitable that they're ultimately going to come out not only in actions and deeds, but in the words that we speak, the things that we talk about, the things that we say, the things that we delight to talk about, the things that others delight to talk about. And so eventually that's going to come out. That's the idea here. So you bring all this together then, and it's no surprise that when the foolish of heart multiply their words, the moral depravity exposed in them will only descend and get worse. The more a person talks, the less restraint they feel. The less restraint they feel, the more evident it becomes what's in their heart. And if it's foolishness, then there you go. Foolishness is what comes out. And of course, this is, again, said in the world of politics, of civil authority and power, the rural, rural court, courts, if you will. We well, don't say that five times fast. It's the R's and the Y's. And so we know that from our world of politics. The more they talk, eventually their true intention is made known. But if we know this as well in our own experience. Often what starts off as an ill-spoken word, a foolish word, uh, ends and descends in an argument. It descends to... Things that we regret saying. How often have you heard or maybe you've said yourself, I can't believe I said that in the heat of an argument. That's the idea here. That what begins as folly ends in wicked madness. In other words, there's a progression. A progression downward in this point, not forward. A descending progression, if you will. But the wise person here then is one who would, in contrast to this, know how to restrain the words. A wise person doesn't say everything that comes to mind. How often do we hear, I'm only being honest, right? As if that is a virtue. Sometimes we say that uh, in ways that in our words end up hurting rather than building up. And, and sometimes that's seen as a virtue of honesty when in fact scripture would say it's merely foolishness. It's not the words of a wise person. Listen to Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his word his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. He who has self-control over the things that he says is a wise person. They have understanding. They know that there is an appropriateness to things to be, when things should be said and when things should not be said. That's just basic wisdom. There you could say it's common sense, but it would be, in terms of biblical wisdom, constrained by what God says is true and appropriate and so forth. But the fool, again, feels little to no restraint, but rather considers themselves so clever, so bold, and so witty in their own eyes that they feel that whatever comes to their mind necessarily must be spoken. It must be heard by others because in their mind it is even an ex expression of what they assume and many times will be perceived as a boldness or cleverness or whatever. Proverbs 18.2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. 
right? So that's the tendency that we all know to some degree or another that you enter into a conversation, you enter into a situation and the inward thoughts, the inward reality of the heart is not to uh, set our thoughts aside to listen and to try to understand the intent of what the other person is saying, where they're coming, whether it's right or wrong and you agree that's, that's irrelevant, but you're trying to understand where they're say, what they're saying and where they're coming from. It is the one who just goes into that conversation or situation merely with one intent and that is to say what they want to say and reveal what they know. He says here, that's, that's a foolish person. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. And this gets even worse if you look in verse 14, and therefore the fool multiplies his words. The fool multiplies its words. It's an interesting characteristic of a fool is that they like to talk a lot. Unfortunately, Solomon noted that even a fool seems wise when he keeps his mouth shut. Proverbs 17, 28, when even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. So you could picture the one in a conversation that's going, hmm, mm-hmm. And people are like, man, they've got deep thoughts going on there. They, they clearly understand this at a level that is beyond what everybody else that is talking. And inside they could be thinking, I have no idea what to say. I have no idea. I'm totally clueless or whatever. But that's the idea is that but when one seems wise, when, there, when a fool keeps his mouth shut, uh, he seems wise, but as soon as he opens his mouth, then all of that goes away and he's seen for what he is. And unfortunately, because fools like to talk, again, it brings trouble on themselves. Just let's listen to a few examples again from Proverbs. Proverbs 10.8, the wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. The wise of heart will listen to instruction, they will follow them, but the babbling fool is one who doesn't receive those commands, uh, talks about their own rebellion in a sense, and therefore brings ruin upon themselves. Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 14, 3, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them. So when a foolish man speaks, again, his foolishness brings upon him harm. In this case, a rod. In other words, punishment, discipline, difficulties, some transgression that has a consequence of his own suffering and harm, discipline in some form. A fool can't, can't keep himself out of trouble is the idea. And again, they're so blinded by pride, they don't see the foolishness of his or her heart and actions despite what it brings. Proverbs again, 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And the reality is that we know in life, in politics, in the world, in business, whatever, in friendships and relationships, that very often it's the loudest and most confident voice that holds the most sway, isn't it? If somebody is loud, if they're confident, if they're bold in their decisions, then it's relatively easy and common for them to gather a certain following, a certain people who will line up behind them, who will jump onto their cause, who will listen to them as though somehow confidence equals wisdom. And unfortunately, it doesn't. Sometimes behind much confidence is a great amount of ignorance and a great amount of foolishness. That's why we have to listen. We have to be wise. We have to think. But it is the case in a fallen world that the loudest and most confident often tend to get people to follow them and lead them into their path of foolishness. And he gives a specific example here at the second part of verse 14. He says, no man knows what will happen and who can tell what will come after him. What does he mean by that? He means this, that the foolish, a part of the foolish multiplying their words, a part of the pride of the foolish person, a part of the one who doesn't receive counsel is the one who also speaks boldly about the future and things that are outside of their control. They speak with a certain uh, confidence, a certain certainty about what will happen, what will be the fruit of their deeds. I mean, do we see this not all the time? We hear it all the time, certainly. And his point here is that no one knows what will happen. It is a fool who speaks that way. Don't listen to them. They act as if they know what will happen, they know, as if they know what they will accomplish, as if they have all knowledge, and they ignore the mystery of God's providence and the secret purposes of God's hidden things that he ordains, of his hidden purposes. And again, ignorance does not keep the fool from confidence. Now, encouragement is good. Confidence in the future is a good thing. We can think of, I know 
what popped in my mind anyway is uh, leaders in World War II, Churchill, who spoke of great confidence despite their suffering. He, he led a nation to hold firm when everything was against them. And in fact, there was at one point where they were the only ones in all of Europe that kept it from being overtaken by Nazi uh, military. They were the one holdout because they simply would not give up no matter how much destruction that England had received. And that was largely in effect because Churchill as the voice for that nation at the time upheld them by strength. He encouraged them. There, there's a place for that. There's a rightness to that in leadership. But that's not what he's talking about here in terms of knowing the future. He's talking about an approach to the future and one who speaks about the future with the confidence of self, the confidence that makes no allowance and displays no acknowledgement of God's hand in determining the outcome. That's what he's talking about. It's the, the confidence of pride. It's the confidence that is if we live in a world in which God does not exist or as if God is beholden to our plans and to our will and to our ways. That's what he's referring to here. And he says, that's a fool. And the foolish speak that way. I'll just reference this We've many times because it reflects much of what he's saying here. Is James, he's not talking about the wise person not planning for the future. He's not talking about the wise person not receiving counsel for the future. He's not talking about that. In James, he says, it's the one who says, we'll go to such and such a city and, you know, we'll do business and so on and so forth. But we should not say that. We should say what? Do you remember as the Lord wills, as the Lord wills, we'll go to such and such a place. In other words, it reflects not a lack of planning, but a submission of heart to the sovereign will and the purposes of God, to his providence. And the fool does not demonstrate that, and the wise person does. And that's essentially what he's talking about here. So what is then a mark of wisdom in contrast to this? It is simple. Humility. Humility. Humility is a mark of wisdom. Pride is a mark of foolishness. Proverbs says this, again, you're familiar with this passage, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path clear. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That is wisdom. And that is the kind of wisdom, then, that should be in the speech of us, in the speech of men, particularly you would want to hear it in the speech of your leaders. And just as a side note here, as taking this principle and expanding it out a bit, this is why it's, it's important and wiser to be more sober-minded than we often are and to be careful of the moral goals of our hearts and the purity of our words when we speak. What is the goal of our speech is the idea here. What should mark a believer is this, Ephesians 5.4, there should be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving a thanks. He says earlier, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but listen, only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to hear. That's wise counsel. That's opposed to the fool who speaks boastfully, who speaks confidently of things that he cannot know and that he cannot understand who multiplies words though he has no understanding. Rather, we should speak in a way that builds up, that gives thanks, that is marked by purity. So stop and consider your words within your home, your various relationships, your work. Consider the words that you hear from others. How closely do they reflect the gospel of Christ? How closely do they reflect the wise counsel that God gives us here through Solomon? Think of your speech over just this last week. And what kind of heart does it display? That's the, the contrast then between foolish and wise words. And remember, as James reminds us, that our words are going to be the truest expression of the spiritual reality or the spiritual maturity of our hearts. Let's go thirdly here, or fifthly here, an observation, this next section. I'm really going to try to finish uh, this morning. Uh, he says this. Uh, beginning in verse uh, 15 uh, through verse 19, here's the observation. A nation is harmed by a lazy, self-indulgent ruler, but blessed by one with the interest of the people at heart. A nation is harmed by a lazy, self-indulgent ruler, but blessed by one that has the interest of the people 
at heart. And this is verses 15 through 19. And first he notes then a foolish, the foolish ruler. And he says that a foolish ruler is marked by ineptness and incompetence that stems from pride. Ineptness and incompetence. Look at verse 5. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. This is a pathetic picture of the foolish. A pathetic picture of the foolish. In other words, this is one who is too foolish to listen to counsel too lazy to plan wisely and lives with such an ineptness that it produces a kind of silliness and stupidity that seems not to be able to accomplish even the most simple task. That's the idea. That's the idea of the person here. Doesn't even know how to go into a city. So confident in himself, he does not listen to counsel and so he makes foolish decisions and acts with an evident stupidity and ridiculousness that's observant, uh, be able to be observed by everyone but themselves. Again, that's the, the irony of foolishness and pride is so often uh, the one who is a fool and proud and speaks this way uh, thinks of themselves as being very exalted in the eyes of others, but in fact, with anyone with a, a, even the smallest amount of integrity or wisdom, they, they merely look like a fool. Again, I often think in that case of a drunk person uh, who's had too much to drink and they feel in their mind they're so suave, so, so witty, and if you're sober, you're thinking you're so foolish. You look so silly. Well, that's the idea here, not so much under the control of alcohol, but under the control of a foolish heart. He says you don't even know how to go to the city. There's, a, there's a, a dismal ineptness about their life to accomplish anything worthwhile, anything that actually builds up, anything that's actually successful. That's the idea. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And when this is the characteristic of those in power, it spells disaster for the rest of the nation, doesn't it? That's really kind of the horror of it, the terror of it, is, is that's fine when it's a, an individual, but when this is one who actually holds an authority where their decisions have influence and affect the lives of those under them, then it's a sad situation indeed. That they have such ineptness for what they are called to. And again, that's the principle, though, that is a part of God's moral universe. And it reaches well beyond the rural courts into every area of life. Although it is, in some sense, uh, more devastating when it's in the, the, the condition of one who is a ruler. Listen again to just a few of the echoes of this in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And this opens us up to another reality. The greater foolishness isn't even what happens in the royal courts. It's not what happens in a nation. It's what happens in the soul of a person. And again, this reflects, we're, we're not reading a self-help book or 20 ways to be wise and successful in this world by whatever author comes out. We're reading God's word by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that tells us how to live wisely before him in a world that he created and that has an ultimate end in which justice and righteousness will be upheld. So in other words, ultimately, this wisdom reflects a spiritual wisdom and a spiritual reality. Certainly, there's... Ways that this works itself out in the practicalities of life, as does all of our spiritual life. But it, it ultimately has its greatest weight in the spiritual effect of our lives. And he says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end, its way is death. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. So who is the greatest fool? Who is the greatest fool? The greatest fool then, if we take this principle and put it into its entire biblical context, is the one who ignores divine counsel. That's really the idea. The greatest fool is the one who ignores divine counsel. So there is, of course, an application here. So here is a leader who does not fear God. And because he does not fear God, he does not follow God's word. He does not seek to conform his life and exercise his authority in a way that is righteous and produces righteousness in those over whom he rules. So, yes, there is that level of foolishness, but it stems from the much more profound issue of having no fear of God, no sense of yielding to his word, no sense of bringing his life under the truthfulness of God's word. So the greatest fool really 
is then the one who ignores divine counsel. That's the real issue. Who ignores counsel from our creator. And are we not seeing this lived out every day in our own lives? And of course, in the history of the world, this is nothing unique. Every time has its own particularities, of course, but, but we see it lived out constantly. Romans 1.22, what is the heart of rebellion? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's the ultimate reality of what Solomon is displaying here. In this foolish ruler who's so foolish, he doesn't even know how to do the most simple task. He's marked by ineptness. The greatest tragedy or travesty of all is when one is too foolish to listen to divine counsel and not merely that they make stupid political decisions, but they make stupid spiritual decisions that end in ruin, ultimately all final ruin and eternal ruin. And now he's going to unfold this. I'll mention it here in the rest of what he says, but let me put this into an ultimate picture. Whatever pleasures, whatever accolades, whatever possessions accumulated in this world, the foolish mark their foolishness by choosing the temporary over the eternal. By choosing the temporary over the eternal. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So here is the fool who has no concern for that, no concern for final justice, no concern about what the consequences of his life will be, no concern to listen to divine counsel, namely that his foolishness is going to be his own destruction. And how many live that way? Who live as though the Son of Man was not going to return, as though there were no glory of the Father that he would come in as if there were no kingdom to be established, as if there were no judgment coming upon the disobedience of men, as there were no glorious God who spoke all things into existence and upholds it by the word of his power, as if it were not true that all the glory of flesh will pass away, but the word of God abides forever, as if that were not true. The wise ruler, the wise person, lives in light of this fact, and realizes the temporary nature of this world and regulates their life with Christ at the center from our vantage point. Certainly from theirs, it would have been at the center the one who had redeemed them from the land of Egypt, the one who had made a covenant with Abraham, the one who had revealed his grace and his glory of his redemption through the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and so forth. And at this time that he's writing, even the glorious structure of the Solomonic temple, which came with all of, its, with all of its, uh, the wonder of its being instituted within the nation of Israel with the cloud and the fire that came out and all of this and the great prayer that he offered here was a testimony to the fact that they served the living and the true God who rules over all things even the glory of the temple was understood to be merely a the smallest reflection of his presence among his people for heaven and the highest heavens could not contain him it was to be the place where they met with their God and when they sinned they came they confessed and God restored them back to his good favor that was a wise ruler who understands that we want that kind of wisdom in our rulers that understands that whatever, whatever complexities of life and whatever complexities of the nation that they rule over bring to them, that there is a God who has given moral principles and clarity about how to address those complexities. And if we step outside of that, then it is to our own destruction. It is to our own destruction. Christ is the beginning and the end of true wisdom. And so the second mark then of a foolish ruler, one, is that he doesn't listen to counsel and he lives in an ineptness of life. The second mark of a foolish ruler then is the consequence of that, which is inexperience and self-indulgence. Inexperience and self-indulgence. He says the toil of a fool so wearies him, he doesn't even know how to go to a city. In other words, he lives his life with, again, an ineptness and a stupidness that ultimately is a spiritual foolishness. 
But then the fruit of that, the product of that as well, as he says in verse 16, is woe to you, O land, who is a, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. And here he's comparing, comparing a wise ruler with the foolish ruler who is marked by inexperience and self-indulgence. Uh, notice what he says at first. Where do you land whose king is a lad? Whose king is a lad. This is an interesting term. It could refer to the age of the ruler as far as just young or old. Uh, that's very possible. And particularly in the ancient world that lived where, where kingship and a monarchy, where authority was something passed on by succession, by lineage, then you could have a youth who was actually young be raised to a place of power. We have examples of that. You might be thinking of some. Uh, there were two kings mentioned particularly in the, the history of Israel who were eight years old when they received their kingship. Josiah and Jehoiakim. Josiah, it says in 2 Kings 22.1, that he was eight years old when he became king. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in all the, way, in all the ways of his father, nor did he turn to the right or to the left. You'll remember Josiah was the one who was cleaning out the temple and they found the book of the law. It was brought to him when he read it. He ripped his clothes. He repented and he basically sought to put in place reforms in the nation of Israel that brought them in line to the will of God. He was aware of how far they had strayed because the word of God was not made known to him and to the nation and they were essentially living foolishly. And yet, even then, God said that he's going to spare the nation from the exile in his time, Josiah's time, but it would come after him. Why? Because the sin had simply run too deep. But here he was, eight years old, and in the overall testimony of his life is that he did what was right. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and actually reigned only for a matter of months. And so it is possible that when he says, woe to you whose king is a lad, that is referring uh, to age. It's also possible that he's emphasizing not so much youth as in age, as in number of years of existence, but rather inexperience for the task that has been assigned to them. And in fact, that's exactly how Solomon used this term in 1 Kings 3, chapter 3, verse 7, when he said this, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. He did not mean he was an infant. He didn't mean he was a toddler who had just learned to walk. What he meant was this. He was inexperienced for this role. He says, I do not know how to go out or come in. He was intelligent enough to give that prayer. He was mature enough to understand that he needed God's divine grace. But the emphasis that he has there is not so much on his youth, but on his inexperience, his inability, his, his lack of developed skills to be able to rule and to run the nation over God's people. And that's why he asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom. He realized the task I've been assigned is greater than my abilities. It's greater than my experience. It's greater than my skills. I need help. And that's probably the idea here, however, is that this is one who has risen to power, but not through a demonstration of skill, not through integrity, not through a display of ability, but by some other means. And now that they are in power, they demonstrate that they are ill-equipped for the task. They have the position, they have the honor, they have the wealth, they have the prestige, but they do not have the skill. They do not have the ability. It's a, really a further display of their ineptness. Primarily, it's a lack of a proper sense of responsibility, and that's what he's going to emphasize. They're recognizing this position or seeing this position not as a means to care over the, for the people over which they have authority, but rather as a means to serve their own interest. And oh, isn't that a display of many of the rulers of men? It's what Jesus, in part, was emphasizing when he said, the rulers of the Gentiles like to lord it over them. They use it for their own ends, not to serve. In contrast to Christ, the true king, the true God, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom, though he bore testimony himself, even before Pilate, that he was a king, but his kingdom was not of this world. 
And therefore, he did not act according to the principles of a fallen world, but according to the principles of the divine kingdom, which would ultimately display in power and glory. But here is a, is a ruler who lacks a sense of responsibility. They're ill-prepared for the task. And instead of seeing the task, as Josiah did, as a means of great responsibility, they saw it merely as a means for personal fulfillment. They saw it as a means to their own pleasures and indulgences, their own ends. They used the people for themselves rather than spend themselves for the people. They saw it, verse 17, to rule not in strength of character, not in, in strength of integrity, but in drunkenness. But in drunkenness. That's why they used it not to the good things they had, not to be strong to rule well, but rather to indulge themselves. And just quickly here, by contrast, though, is verse 17. Blessed are you, a land whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time. Again, for strength and not for drunkenness. That's the positive side of it. And that is one who comes to rule and they realize that they have a responsibility and their sense of responsibility is greater than their tendency to self-indulgence. This is the ruler who rises not to please himself and indulge his own lust, but to fulfill his duty, to be faithful to his responsibility, to take seriously the consequences of his actions on others, and therefore is governed by self-control. Is governed by self-control. But again, unfortunately, foolishness is the, the, the dominant theme here, and it is the predominant mark of our own times, which is bad enough, again, when an individual is foolish, when there's foolishness in the home or the workplace, but it's exponentially worse when, again, when it marks those who are in authority because the consequences are greater. It affects every citizen. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people are glad, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. People groan when there's wickedness in places of authority. And look at verse 18 and then... I'll expand this out a bit more. Verse 18, through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. And again, this is the result of negligence. Ruler or one with political authority and who is slothful and negligent, it leads only to the ruin and despair of the things they are in charge of to maintain. And here he uses the, the imagery of a house that is not taken care of. And so... The effects of time, the effects of weather, the effects of negligence cause it to fall into disrepair. In terms of a political leader, it would really be indicative of their entire life and their entire rule. So it means they don't set proper policies. They don't give proper attention to the system where injustice would be upheld rather than injustice. There's not a proper governance of the land that would uphold what is right and what is good. They're too involved with their own self-indulgence. They don't actually make any progress in terms of what would serve the people and strengthen the nation. They're, again, living only for themselves. But again, as well, this expands beyond the royal courts. And the picture of the fool, then, is essentially this. The person who is controlled by his or her passions and pleasures. This is the person who wakes, and the first goal, the first thought, the most important concern in their heart, in their morning, their inner thoughts, is how they will spend their day to please themselves and accomplish their end, not with a sense of responsibility about what I am to do today, what I am to accomplish for things that are greater than myself and to serve others. In other words, you could say this is the one who has a sense of entitlement, they live for no higher purpose other than to please themselves and indulge themselves. And they also generally wake up in a bad mood because as soon as they wake up, people are crossing their own desires. Not that that's ever happened to any of us, I'm sure. We wake up with a smile and ready to serve all the time. But here it is, the ruler who that's the character of their life. Not a moment of failing, which we all understand, but he has to say it is the character of their life, and that is the mark of a foolish person. And again, it produces a life of slothfulness and selfishness, which fuels, comes out of pride. There are several places to go, and I want to just say a few more things about this, because it is very important. Obviously, more could be said about all of this, but let me just read you a few passages. Oh, uh, Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, 
uh, observe her ways and be wise. I remember I worked with, <laughs> this just came to me, uh, I worked with a, a guys, and I would quote this proverb to them some, you know, the guy, and uh, so then they would always say it back to me, you know, look to the ant. Uh, but look to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Your slothfulness, will, your negligence will bring about your ruin. There is no self-motivation. This is the one who needs somebody to enforce their will on them in order for them to accomplish anything rather than has a wise person some inner compulsion, at least to some level, to be able to not need somebody to rule over them, not somebody to keep on them to finish a task, but rather has within themselves a motivation and a fear of God in the context, again, of Scripture and Proverbs that motivates them and causes them to get up and be responsible for their life. Take responsibility for your life. Let me give just one more quickly here. Proverbs 26, 12 says this. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, a lion in the open square. And as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard in his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. And there it is. And unfortunately, that characterizes too often rulers who have authority and too often men who bear God's image. It produces then a person who wants but never actually achieves or attains anything. You know what I mean? That's the idea there. It's somebody who wants all kinds of things. They want to be a good athlete. They want to be good in academics and in school. They want to be successful in life, but they're too lazy to put the work in. They expect it merely to come to them, merely to happen. The soul of the sluggard, he says in another place, craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And of course, this goes for many things in life. As I mentioned, the one who wants to be an athlete but doesn't want to put in the hard work and self-discipline, doesn't want to rise early in the morning, doesn't want to deny themselves any pleasure in which they would go and train their body and sharpen their skills. Why? They want it but they don't want to work for it. The one who wants academic success but would rather watch TV or further away the day than open the book and put in the self-discipline of study and hard work. Most people do not get into Harvard by making a habit of watching a season of a show on Netflix in a day. Christians who want to grow in holiness and knowledge but are not motivated enough to put in the exercise of self-discipline to rise early to read their Bible to serve when it's inconvenient, to pray and set aside time to pray for that sole purpose of going to the inner room to spend time with God in prayer. You will not grow if you do not exercise spiritual disciplines. Not as if spiritual disciplines are an end in themselves, but they are the means to the end to knowing God. He's revealed in one place in his word. And so this principle plays out in all of our lives. What do we give up? Let me just ask it in a simple way like this in terms of our spiritual lives with this principle. What do you give up in terms of pleasure in order to grow in holiness? Obviously, you have to answer that. What do you give up in terms of time or any kind of sacrifice in terms of sleep, in terms of time, in terms of an activity that you might spend time with the Lord alone in prayer? That you might have extra time beyond the three minutes in the morning maybe Uh, in his word. If we want to grow in holiness, it's going to require a spirit empowered to be sure, but us responding to the power of the spirit within us to actually pursue it. And so here it is, of course, in the life of a ruler, it's rather obvious, but it is the principle that applies to all of us. Our rafters can sag and our house can leak in many ways when we are self-indulgent and not driven by higher ideals. And we live in a culture of entitlement. And that's really the issue. 
A sense of entitlement brings a lack of responsibility. A sense of entitlement brings about a lack of responsibility in life. And entitlement is the very banner over much of the, our culture. We're infected with it and infested with it at every level. And guess what? The church is not exempt. The church isn't exempt. Just listen to these words uh, in 2 Timothy and realize that he's speaking to those who are professing Christ. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Why will these difficult times come and what will be the mark of these difficult times? For men will be lovers of self. Let's not forget self-esteem. That's the foundation of all godliness, remember. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, for why should I submit to somebody over me, right? It's about my own self-expression, my own living consistent with my desires. That's being true to myself. Follow my own heart. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful. Why would we be ungrateful grateful if we're entitled to anything, everything? Unholy, unloving, Unloving, love requires sacrifice to consider others as more important than ourselves. Irreconcilable, because we're marked by vengeance rather than seeking peace. Malicious gossips, because we delight in the destruction of others if it builds ourselves up. Without self-control, because it's all about me giving in to every inner impulse that I feel that it must be indulged. This is the church, the profession church. Uh, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Here it is. Lovers of pleasures, r- pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men of these. What does he mean there? Holding to an external, some kind of profession of godliness and religion that they do not know at all the saving and sanctifying power of the gospel in their life. It has no sanctifying power. It has no spiritual power within their lives and the word of God within their lives and the gospel within their lives to actually cause them to grow in holiness, to deny themselves, to be repentant and broken and contrite of heart over their sin, to lean again freshly on the gospel throughout the interaction and the intercourse of their lives with others. So that is the warning here. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. And blessed are you, O Christian and O person, who understands that there is an appropriate time for the pleasures that God gives and there is an inappropriate time that we would put the first things first and the second things second, that we would have a right order and priority to our lives. That's what we need to be striving for. And so... This is the warning to us. That's the the wise and the foolish. But notice here again, and I'm going to just jump here to the end, that it's it's an issue of self-control, of ordered priorities, not austerity, not asceticism, not harsh treatment of the body, not a denial of all of the good things that God has given to us, but rather it's a matter of self-control. And if you'll remember, that is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Self-control. That we don't give in to every impulse. That every thought, first thought that comes to our minds is not a good idea. But that's biblical wisdom. That's not necessarily the wisdom of our culture. It's biblical wisdom. That's what God calls us to. Uh, There are times for self-denial, to be sure, but the point is not that a wise ruler should refuse themselves the pleasures that come with their position. There there are certain advantages, and it's not to say that those advantages shouldn't be enjoyed to some level. It It is to say they should not be master. That's the issue. They should not control the ruler. Is a ruler going to live in a nicer house? Are they going to have more privileges in the culture in which they live? Are they going to have more people to help them and serve them? Are they going to have good meals and feasts and banquets? Yes, is that wrong? Not at all. Of course, you're the ruler. You should have those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But when those things become the priority, and we can see how this plays out into all life, that's the problem. Then it goes from being a blessing that returns back praise to God, a fruit of a righteous life of integrity and faithful service, and it becomes master. It becomes an idol. And so he's not saying that those things aren't. In verse 19, prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. In short, 
let's just say there's two ways that could be taken. It could be then a description of those who are living, living self-indulgently, and this is kind of what they're saying, that, hey, fruit, wine is just to be for a good time, and we have the supply of all of the money and the resources we need to buy everything we need to indulge ourselves to feast, so eat, drink, and be happy and merry. That's one way to take it. A second way to take it without... Well, a second way to take it is to say that he's commending here these things which he has throughout Ecclesiastes. He ends in each section, as you've become aware of so far, uh, often, with a statement about the enjoying the good things that God gives. But enjoy them, and he'll end this way in chapter 11, enjoy them realizing that God's going to bring everything to judgment. Enjoy them righteously, in other words. Enjoy them wisely. Enjoy them as they were meant to be enjoyed, not as they weren't. We're not meant to be enjoyed. And so I, I would lean towards that second way to understand this, that he's saying here, look, things are fine. These things are good. A meal should be enjoyed. Wine does make life merry. And money does solve a whole host of problems, doesn't it? But those things are not the priority. He's not saying that an austere life, but wisdom is one who enjoys these things with self-control that looks at the bigger picture that looks at the bigger picture. And then he ends in verse 20 in this way. Uh, skipping over here. But let's look at verse 20. How, do, how does verse 20 fit into the remainder of this section? Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Well, the obvious intent here at first is to say that, that living in this kingdom, and particularly here would be one in the royal court, again, one who, who has a position, who has some kind of presence within the royal court. And, and the first instance of this, then, of his intention here, is to say, be wise how you conduct yourself in this court, because realize that what you say and what you might devise that you think is in secrecy will actually be found out eventually. And so be wise about that. Don't curse the king in your bedchamber because eventually it will be found out and that is the illustration of a bird taking it, a winged creature to make uh, the matter known. So the observation that our speech against a ruler should be guarded, let me ask you, and I've said this before and I've been convicted in, in growing in this area as well, how do you speak about the rulers of our nation? How do you speak about the rulers that God has set over you? That's important. It's a matter not so much of whether it will be found out we would fear that, but it is a matter of our hearts. It is a matter of how we respond in our hearts to God. And that's the bigger picture here. It is a reflection of our attitude. And so we should be careful how we talk about our leaders. And again, I'm including myself in that as well. The fundamental point relates to this, again, and this is where I want to wrap it up and bring us into the table. The fundamental point relates to the wisdom and the fear of God. For more important than being discovered and facing punishment is to avoid the sin because it's sin against God. That's really the issue. The real question of our obedience and exercise of wisdom is a question of motive in its truest sense. Is sin avoided, and this is, this is implicit in what Solomon is talking about, is sin avoided because of the punishment it might bring or because it is sin against God? Well, obviously you have to answer that in your own life, and I do too. One said this, uh, one old preacher, he caught this idea. He said, in the last analysis, fear of being found out is fear of punishment, while fear of Jehovah is fear of sin in itself. Herein is revealed the difference between the wisdom which is earthly, sensual, and devilish, and the wisdom that is from above, which is first pure. It is true that honesty is the best policy, but the man who is only honest because it is good policy is a rogue at heart. Thus all maxims which have a sound of wisdom need to be tested by the motive which inspires them. That's the idea. It's the motive of the heart. And if we were to get even more of the issue, we could add this as a final part. Our hearts are displayed in the secret and hidden moments of our lives. They're, they're displayed in the secret thoughts of our lives, the secret motives of our lives. That's where they are most evident. Not in what others think of you, but what you know God sees in you. 
That's the issue of godliness. That's where holiness takes place. That's where spiritual battle is fought in all of our lives. It's who we are in private, not who we are in public. That's why we don't make displays ostentatiously of religion, uh, but we seek God privately in prayer in Matthew 6. We fast while making ourselves look like we're rejoicing on the outside so that no one would notice. That we foster humility in our own heart, noticing the log in our own eyes so that we could be actually helpful in the use of someone else in their growth because we come with the right attitude, Matthew 7. To deal with sin in relationships and particularly as we come to the, the table so that we can truly worship God, Matthew 5. Listen to his words with a heart of sincere obedience that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And then ask God to change in us everything that doesn't hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so when we come to the table, all of this finds its glorious climax. Because we realize in one sense, in the context here of Ecclesiastes, that all of the rulers in the history of man are going to be in one category of good and bad. None of them perfect. Even David had his own failing. Even David's actions resulted at times in the destructions of thousands of his own people. Right? And so when we look at all of this, why we gain wisdom, we also are constantly, as all of Scripture is meant to do, is to point us to the final culmination, the reality of what our hearts truly long for, which is the establishment of the truly righteous kingdom and the one who is the righteous, only righteous king, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our hearts are meant to long for ultimately, and that's what's represented here in the table when we come to these elements, a reminder that our king is coming. He's not here yet, he's not here physically, but he is coming and he will be and he will establish justice and righteousness. But he is also here, his presence is by his spirit who has united us to him. If anyone does not have the spirit of God, also the spirit of Christ, also the Holy Spirit, he is none of his. But we who do have the spirit in a unique way, he resides in his people and his people gathered. And when we remember these glorious truths of the gospel of our redemption, our union with Christ, his coming return as our master and our king and our Lord and our God in these elements. And so let's do that. I'm gonna pray briefly and then just give you a few moments to pray silently. Just a few moments uh, to come to the table in a worthy manner. That means to come in the sincerity of faith. It doesn't mean to come without sin. It means to come willing to turn away from your sin and wanting to walk in righteousness. It means realizing that we have a perfect atonement in Christ. It means coming with the determination that by God's help and by his spirit to live for him and to trust him. So I'll give you a few moments to pray silently and then I'll, open and I'll pray and we'll take the elements.